Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Vote 2019 edition, day 21 of the federal election campaign, and the focus today is on Canada's foreign aid funding and cuts promised by Andrew Scheer, and on gun control and Justin Trudeau being pressed to do more on handguns, and affordability and post-secondary education also featuring in the campaign narrative today. Lots to discuss coming up, but first, our day 21 campaign primer. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer campaigned in Battleground Toronto today, where he unveiled the Conservative Party's policy on foreign aid. The Conservatives would cut Canada's annual foreign aid budget of roughly $6 billion by 25%, stripping funding from middle and upper income countries such as Barbados and Argentina, and from regimes hostile to Canada such as Iran, North Korea and Russia. Scheer says he would redirect $700 million to poorer countries and use the rest of the savings to bankroll the Conservative leaders' promised tax cuts and tax credits for Canadians. We're going to spend that money here at home on things like our universal tax cut that will save every single Canadian taxpayer hundreds of dollars a year. Our children's tax credits that will make your kids' hockey registration and art classes more affordable. Our increase to the age credit that will put more money back in the pockets of every senior our boost to the RESP that will make it easier to save for your child's post-secondary education, our tax-free maternity benefits so new parents have more money to spend, on, to spend on those expensive first months of life, our green public transit tax credit that makes it more affordable to take the bus or the train to work, and our green home renovation tax credit that will lower emissions and help Canadians pay for green upgrades to their homes. In short, our plan will take your hard-earned tax dollars away from dictators and relatively wealthy countries and put them back in your pockets so that you can get ahead. Andrew Scheer is also promising to reopen the Office of Religious Freedom created under the previous Conservative government and to open discussions with the United States to join the ballistic missile defence system. He's also promising to depoliticize the military procurement process. And on foreign aid funding, a pledge once again not to reopen the debate over abortion. What this is about is which types of countries will receive financial assistance. And so uh, groups that are, that, are, that are receiving funding will continue to receive funding going in the future. This decision does not affect uh, groups or programs going forward. Thank you for being here today. For a second day, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was also in Vote Rich Ontario and again focusing on gun control. He met with mayors of municipalities in suburban Toronto to discuss his proposals to ban military-style assault rifles and to give municipalities the option and the authority to ban handguns within their borders. As we all know too well, gun crime is going up. I've spoken with municipal leaders over the years on how the federal government can help. When we were in government, we brought in common-sense gun legislation that included enhanced background checks and stronger restrictions around transporting a firearm. And today, further reinforce that we need to do even more, as we heard firsthand how the rise in gun violence is rocking our cities. Here's the reality. We've seen far too much gun violence in our streets in recent years. There have been too many lives lost, too many families torn apart, 
and too many communities left reeling in the wake of tragedy. I'm standing here today and saying that enough is enough. It's time to show some courage and take a strong stand against gun violence. That's why a re-elected Liberal government will give municipalities the option and the authority to ban or restrict handguns. But a municipal handgun ban is clearly not enough, even for the mayors gathered with the Prime Minister today. Asked for a show of hands, almost all of them demonstrated their desire for a national handgun ban. But the Liberal leader just isn't ready to go that far. We are taking the strongest step uh, in uh, Canadian history to move forward on tougher gun legislation. Uh, we are moving forward uh, on a full-out ban on assault weapons. And we're moving forward to empower municipalities across this country, cities big and small, to ban handguns uh, within their districts, within their municipalities. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned for an eighth straight day in British Columbia. He joined young families for breakfast, where he restated his proposals for universal childcare, pharmacare, and affordable housing. But the polls suggest Singh is having trouble closing the gap with the front-running Liberals and Conservatives. Is he concerned? I think about what it's like for Canadians who are being told that they've got to settle for less. I'm not worried about myself, I'm worried about them. And I know that we can do a lot better, and I'm confident we can do a lot better. And I'm worried that Conservatives are going to cut services that families need, and Liberals are going to tell people to be afraid of that and to settle for less. And I want Canadians not to settle for less. You deserve a lot better. You deserve a lot better, and I'm going to deliver that for you. Anyone who's short, Nick, I don't want to call out short people, but yeah. make sure everybody can be seen. Green Party leader Elizabeth May also campaigned in Toronto today, where she highlighted her party's pledge to spend $16 billion on post-secondary education. Six billion would be used to provide free post-secondary tuition, another 10 billion in increased supports for universities and colleges. And how would the Greens pay for those promises? We pay for it with a number of new streams of revenue. We do not increase taxes for average wage-earning Canadians. We do create a wealth tax for those on their wealth if they have more than $20 million in wealth. I'm looking at this room, I think we're all okay. Uh, but we also uh, will be creating tax, a tax regime on those businesses that make a lot of money in Canada and currently pay almost no taxes. So the e-commerce companies, whether it's uh, Google or Facebook or Amazon, etc. This was uh, found on the bus. And that's the kind of day it's been, day 21 of the election campaign. We're taking this back to Ottawa to be in the Jacqueline building. All right, let's come back now to Andrew Scheer's pledge today to cut foreign aid by 25% and use some of that money to pay for his tax cuts and credits. Here's more from Andrew Scheer and reaction from his opponents. What I've called for today is a more uh, reinvigorated uh, partnership with our traditional allies uh, through NATO and through countries that share our same commitments to democracy, the rule of law, and peace and security. Stronger ties with countries like Japan uh, and India. Um, what this is, is pulling money out of things like the Asian Infrastructure Bank, uh, which does not further Canadians' interests, which is uh, controlled by the government of China, uh, to build roads and bridges and other projects in other countries. Uh, so this is about reinvigorating our relationship, strengthening our relationship on a multilateral level with our traditional allies and countries that share our same values. Andrew Scheer's climate plan relies almost entirely on action overseas. And now he's proposing uh, to stop supporting countries 
uh, who are taking action overseas on fighting emissions. So we see right there that his approach does nothing at home for the environment, and now he's telling us does nothing overseas either. I think, again, Mr. Scheer is, is very skillfully distracting people. If we want to talk about revenue, the whole point of his conversation is to talk about revenue. It is shameful that he's talking about cutting foreign aid when there are massive inequalities in our country, where there is just a couple of families that own the combined wealth of three provinces. When there is so much income and wealth inequality in our country, the fact that he's talking about cutting foreign aid is a distraction. It misses the point. He's missing the whole plot here. We've got massive inequality in our country, and we have to ask those at the very top, the ultra-rich, to pay their fair share. All right, let's drill down on what Andrew Shear is proposing today, that 25% cut in Canada's foreign aid budget. In a moment, I'll be joined by three guests who have uh, expert knowledge on how this whole system works. But first, here's a little background. The Department of Global Affairs says Canada spent $6 billion on international assistance in the 2017-2018 fiscal year. The five countries receiving the most financial aid from Canada, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Mali, and Nigeria. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has uh, set a benchmark for foreign aid for rich member countries. Canada is counted as one of those. That benchmark is 0.7% of gross national income. Canada currently contributes much less than that at 0.28%. I want to bring in three guests now to consider the Conservative promise to cut foreign aid spending and uh, distribute it in a different way to countries that need it most and away from countries and groups that might be hostile to Canada. To do that, let's bring in uh, Stephen Brown, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, and Nick Moyer is the president of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, also joined today by Besma Momani, and she's a political science professor at the University of Waterloo and senior fellow at the Centre for International Governance Innovation. Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Uh, Besma Momani, if I can, let me start with you. Let's start with this: the premise of Andrew Scheer's proposal, which is essentially that medium or upper income countries don't need our help as badly as poorer countries do, and that's where... Uh, more of the money should be going. What do you think of that approach? Well, but it's a distraction because that's that's exactly where we send our money to the very poorest of countries. I, I don't understand how uh, Andrew Scheer is asking us to uh, not give money to corrupt governments. We don't give money to corrupt governments. We give money to people who need it, and foreign aid certainly bypasses governments sometimes to ensure that the very vulnerable get foreign aid, but I think it's a bit of a misleading characterization about our foreign aid policy, that somehow we're giving money to wealthy countries that don't need foreign aid and also to uh, corrupt ones. That's simply not what we're doing. Professor Brown, what's your view on this? He, he listed countries. He talked about Barbados, talked about Argentina uh, as countries that don't need the money as much as other countries. What's your thought on that? I completely agree with Besma. It, it's a mischaracterization of the actual situation. And if you look at the countries that were named, like Argentina and Barbados, or the so-called so-called hostile countries like Iran or North Iran, Korea, North Korea, Russia, we're not sending much money there. The sums are very, very small. Often it's through multilateral programs. In the case of, of Iran and North Korea, I think it's for tuberculosis and fighting AIDS. So it's not propping up countries that are, you know, enemies of Canada in any way. It's global public goods, it's, and it's very small amounts of money that are just going through some global funds. Nick Moyer, what's your view on this? Well, I share the same view. I mean, the fact is that our international assistance targets those who are most in need, and I think that's primarily what it does. 
there's not much to add. Okay, so when he talks about uh, when he talks about countries that are hostile uh, to Canada, shouldn't be getting any of our funding. Um, I mean, who, who's the audience then, Besma Mamani? If you're if you're all saying that you know they, they don't get much of our money and, and it's going to the people, not them. So what's the purpose of this announcement? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is to grab a headline, uh, but it is misleading Canadians in many ways because the implicit uh, point of that is to suggest somehow we do send money to those countries and, and propping up those governments, which we don't. So it's extremely, I think, um, troubling in many ways. You know, I think it's important to have the conversation about where we send foreign aid. Uh, for Canadians' knowledge, we send most of that to sub-Saharan Africa, to the very poorest. Increasingly, we're sending it to countries that need humanitarian aid. Uh, surrounding countries of the Syrian crisis to help and uh, take care of the millions of refugees there, similarly in Afghanistan. Um, we send money to support countries to uh, help uh, come, you know, come adapt to, to climate change, uh, and that's a global good. So we don't send money to corrupt governments or to prop up, you know, corrupt regimes. It's really very misleading, I'm afraid, and it's a bit disappointing. Give us a better idea, gentlemen, if I can, a better idea of what, so Canadians have an idea, of where does this money go? We've touched on it a little bit, but what should they, what should they know about what Canadian foreign funding does? Well, I mean, Canadian humanitarian assistance, international development assistance is guided by principles of alleviating poverty and addressing inequality. And really, it's about um, helping people redress their livelihoods. It's about support for good governance. It's about food security and education. I mean, frankly, it's it's really about being a contributor to global progress. Um, obviously, there's many variations to that. International assistance is provided often through multilateral channels and then oftentimes through directly through uh, NGOs, many of which based in Canada, um, often included also in the sort of our figures of international development assistance, official development assistance, um, are other figures that we may not think of, like refugees that we welcome here in Canada. Mm. Um, if, if, if Mr. Scheer is elected and he would follow, you know, follow through with this this approach, what, what do you think the consequences are? What, what does that do to mm -hmm. Canada's standing on the on the world stage? Well, ironically, this announcement, um, part of this announcement was criticizing the Trudeau government for its lack of standing in the international system. But this announcement would actually just make things worse. So, I mean, there is a lot to criticize the Trudeau government in international affairs. I'm not going to dispute that. But can, cutting Canadian foreign aid would just solidify Canada's reputation as a, as a country that doesn't pay its own share, that's a laggard in international assistance. And when you say solidify, because that's, you know, I mean, uh, uh, how to phrase this, we talk a pretty good game on the foreign aid side in this country, but the truth is that, you know, we're nowhere near the, the OECD target, right? We're nowhere near the target, and we're nowhere, we're not actually at the average. So Canada isn't even an averagely generous country. And that's something that Canadians don't seem to know. We think that we're, you know, doing our share and more, we're very generous. But when you look at the figures, we're below average, and we have been for the past uh, five years or so. But is there an audience, uh, Besmo Momani, you, you touched on it perhaps a little earlier, but I mean, clearly Mr. Shear's tapping into something here. And uh, is there an audience in this country that says, look, we, we have problems of our own to take care of? And this comes up, it seems to me, in every election, uh, that there's always this, uh, this conversation around if we have money to spend, shouldn't we be spending it at home? So what, what's the argument for the value of spending it outside the country as well? 
Well, I mean, the value is simply uh, one of, you know, doing our part. Uh, you know, it's important that we invest in, um, in, in making sure that we uh, bolster, I think, people-to-people -people ties. Uh, we help the very needy. I think when, when Canadians know how little we already put into this, uh, and again, it's under the Harper years, it was actually higher than the Trudeau years. We just continue to keep going down and down, which is something we need to point out. You know, Scheer is actually proposing to cut it even further. So uh, we're not only getting well below the G7 average, we're also increasingly uh, less and less than we did in previous years, particularly when you compare it to our, our overall GNP or GDP. So it's really just quite a shame. We are uh, one that looks like we talk a big game about being this, you know, good uh, good partner in the global system, but we don't actually contribute very much. And I think that's really shameful. But add to that, you know, where the benefit comes in is opening markets, uh, increasingly creating good relationship with people who are going to be uh, hopefully, uh, you know, important uh, consumers for our for our goods. I mean, I point out that Africa is the number one place that we uh, contribute foreign aid. I mean, look at the way China's uh, strategy is uh, of putting lots of money in Africa because they know that's where the future growth is going to be in terms of a billion plus marketplace. So it is, you know, very beneficial to us in the long term. But it's very short sighted to look at foreign aid as just a simple, uh, you know, dollar figure. There is an investment here in creating markets and in creating good relationship with other people. And if you are, if there is a concern around who's getting the Canadian aid, uh, and maybe there, they might be some countries that Canadians don't really appreciate that, but they may be viewed as quote hostile countries to Canada's values or interests. Do we have examples where this country has maintained that kind of aid and contribution to the people of those countries and had it pay off uh, in the long run? Well, there's many great stories uh, in the international sort of development. Uh, context. I mean, you look at uh, South Korea that was a major recipient of aid 40, 50 years ago, which is now one of our major trading partners in Canada. I mean, look at Rwanda that was after the genocide in, you know, the most terrible of states and that is presently an example to many. There's still a lot to do in Rwanda, but, but an example to many on the African continent. I think there's a lot of good examples of how aid makes a difference. And I think it's also really important to point out that Canada played such a leading role historically over, you know, since in the post-war era, building a multilateral order that we could prosper in as a country. Canada does well when the world does well. And, and that's part of our contributions. And that's what's really noteworthy about this, this, this conversation that we're talking about in an election. Canadians really do value international assistance. Our polling shows that. It's over 80% of Canadians that, that actually support international assistance. They don't prioritize it over health care or other things, but they also misunderstand how much we contribute. We do not contribute as much as people think. We actually, it's sort of pocket change. Like we contribute 28, 28 cents on $100 in our economy to international assistance. And we're talking about cutting that. So really, as, as Stephen was saying, it would be going from you know, comparing ourselves to, to others um, out there, in the OECD, we'd be going from ranked 15th to 19th if we were to cut a quarter of our international assistance budget. And that's, that's a major sort of rollback. As the world is facing more authoritarianism, the, you know, attacks on human rights defenders, Canadian values are being challenged internationally. We have a role to play in contributing to that. And, and our pullback signals something to our partners internationally as well. Yeah. Professor Ray, you're nodding on that. Do you, do you want to add something to it? 
Well, one thing that I find particularly problematic is this idea that we shouldn't do things for people abroad until we've helped people at home. And there's this idea we're going to cut the money that that goes abroad and we're going to use it to reduce people's you know heating costs or, or, or cut their taxes, uh, provide and, more tax credits. Yeah, and that's a populist approach. And it's this idea that you can only do one and and you can't do both. Um, we certainly if. If, even if we don't want to increase the, the deficit, even if we want to reduce the deficit, if we need to cut, there are other places we can cut. We can cut the defense budget. We can cut subsidies to uh, the oil and gas sector, which are about $3 billion a year. So this idea that it has to come from foreign aid. I mean, Canada has enough money. We're a wealthy country. Our economy is doing well. We have enough money to take care of people at home and to provide assistance internationally. And, and it's not just something we do because it's nice. It's actually an obligation as a wealthy country to, to provide assistance. Uh, let me pivot slightly here, uh, Professor Momani, and ask you, I mean, this is the headline of the day uh, on, on the I guess on the foreign aid side and on Canada's role in the world. Uh, but we haven't heard anything else about that largely in the campaign. It's been a, you think of Canada-U.S. relations, been a dominant issue for the last three or four years in this country, and we're, we're hearing almost nothing about it on the campaign. So we're talking about this today, and that's important, but what else are we missing? Well, so much of the debate about foreign policy is missing. I mean, this is a big part of it, of course. Foreign aid is a big piece of that. Uh, but generally, we don't really hear a lot about what, uh, you know, potential uh, can, you know, what candidates, if they become in government, what they want to do. Uh, notably, NDP says very little. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, I think, doesn't talk much about foreign policy. It's not his strong suit. Uh, the Trudeau government uh, released, uh, or the platform of the Liberal Party that released some interesting ideas, uh, but very, very weak. I mean, I think about five or six points on on foreign policy, um, including the fact that we are going to take 250 people, very vulnerable people, uh, akin to what we saw with the white helmets of Syria brought to Canada uh, as refugees. Um, but generally speaking, I would say we've seen very little uh, from all three major parties of what they're going to do when it comes to uh, foreign aid and international affairs, generally speaking. And, and what are we losing because of that? Well, I think we lose a lot in terms of uh, a substantive conversation about how it impacts us here. I mean, we can't have a conversation about uh, the environment, about immigration, about the economy without going into a lot of these international affairs issues. Uh, they are very, you know, connected uh, to those matters. And I think it is a disservice to Canadian voters and we don't actually have our candidates really talking about how they would handle these very important files uh, because they do impact us here at home very much so. Uh, Nick Moya, what's your thought? I mean, we're having the conversation today, but it is somewhat in isolation on the one one issue, and it's it's a strong suit for all of you, I know. But what are we missing in the campaign? Well, I, I have to echo the points that uh, Besma Momani made. I, th I think really foreign policy is absent, and and really, if you talk to all the subsectors of Canadian foreign policy, whether you're talking about trade, security, yeah. aid, I mean, really, there's hey, a we've lack been forgotten. We've right, been right. forgotten. But where's the coherence and where's the investment? You know, the decisions need to be made, and we need to be stable in our commitments internationally, so that our partners can trust us and that we can build towards a better world that serves Canadians. Foreign policy is a vector towards national interest and in the aid world it's hard for us to talk about that but there is an enlightened self-interest in that and that we those investments allow us to um, build the future that we want to see for Canadians as well and so we do benefit here in Canada I think in important ways um, and and we're not talking about that so maybe this is the one thing that comes from this that that there's an opportunity for us to elevate the conversations around international assistance. Great. Professor Brown, final word to you. 
Well, um, though I'm not happy with this proposal to cut aid by 25%, I am happy that it has brought foreign aid and international affairs onto the agenda for this election. I think that, you know, the fact that we're here today talking mm -hmm. about it is a good thing for the Canadian debate. Well, and I'm happy you made the time to have this discussion. Thanks to all of you. Uh, do appreciate it, and we'll talk again, and we'll see if this, this issue and others related to foreign policy get a little more uh, attention. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, look, uh, we, we have sent a message to every Canadian who is concerned about the environment that we have a real plan, that we're taking this seriously, that we're going to get rid of the carbon tax because it raises the cost of everything without doing anything for the environment and replace it with a real plan that takes the climate change fight global. And uh, as I said, I've seen lots of footage and lots of pictures from, that, uh, from, the, from those demonstrations, a lot of signs saying actions, not words. That's precisely what our party is focused on, real results to help tackle global climate change by lowering global emissions. Well, that was Conservative leader Andrew Scheer defending his climate change plan and his decision not to take part in any of the big climate change marches last week. And he's also made it clear that his party doesn't share the election priorities of many of the country's biggest environmental groups. That's become clear in a survey released today done by Environmental Defence for 14 major environmental groups in this country, asking the six federal parties for yes or no answers on key environmental issues. Tim Gray is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense. He joins me now. Mr. Gray, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Hi. Uh, Hi. Let's start with a, a little bit of background. What was the purpose of this survey? Yeah, we really wanted to um, try and distill down the concerns of Canadians into 10 easy-to-understand questions that we could put to the parties. Uh, this started with a more lengthy conversation with each of them that started last winter, but then we wanted to distill it down to things that people could clearly understand and that they could give yes or no answers to and then add some additional detail if they wanted to. So we started this process like several months ago and then the questionnaire went out in early July and we spent a lot of time following up with each of the parties to get their specific responses. And I think what's really encouraging here is that um, uh, five out of the six parties did respond and uh, all of them did provide written uh, responses so Canadians can see very clearly what their uh, commitment to these priorities are. All right, we just saw some of them flash by on the screen there, but g give me a sense of the kinds of questions that you asked the parties that would, uh, that would allow them to give a yes or no answer because I, I suppose some of them could say, look, uh, and you did, a, you did allow for partial answers and so on, but give me a sense of what, what some of these key questions were. Yeah, for example, on climate, of course, which is the top concern of Canadians right now, we asked them whether they would make a legislative commitment to keep uh, emissions from Canada uh, at a level that would ensure that we met our 1.5 degree target that we signed on to in Paris. On toxic chemicals, we asked them to move forward to modify the Canadian Environmental Protection Act to ban chemicals that are dangerous and to change the process by which we review them. And on plastics, which is a, a high concern to Canadians as well, we asked them if they would ban single-use plastics and move to circularize the economy so that we collect and recycle much more of the plastics that are produced. Okay. Um, did any of the parties commit to tackling all of the priorities? Yeah. Um, I think the Green Party, I'm just trying to remember <laughs> what they all responded to, but I think the Green Party actually responded affirmatively to all of them. Um, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, the uh, three of the, or uh, four of the six parties tended to respond quite uh, strongly uh, to most of the questions. 
Of course, we didn't get a response from the People's Party, and the Conservative Party uh, decided to respond in a negative way to uh, all of the questions and commitments that we were asking them to make. Okay, and, and what, how do you interpret that? Well, they obviously considered this carefully. We had a lot of back and forth with them, including in-person meetings uh, back in the winter, um, trying to seek uh, them to commit to things that we thought would be um, aligned with their particular approach to um, regulating and uh, <clears throat> moving forward on climate change. Things were more market-based, et cetera, which we thought might be uh, more on brand for them. Um, they clearly have chosen to not commit to doing any of the things that we asked them of in the survey, and they wanted us to make sure that we recorded the response that they sent to us as, as their response to those 10 questions. So this wasn't a case of us just lifting something from their uh, existing platform and, and you know, mischaracterizing it in some way. They specifically asked us to consider this as their response to those 10 questions. Okay, so they, they wanted to make it clear that so you, you, you had this this list of questions that called for commitments to a certain kind of action. So they wanted to make clear that everybody knows that, yeah, we're not doing what you want us to do. And, and they weren't shying away from that. No, no, they were very clear and we had good back and forth with them. And uh, I think the public can now take the information that's provided in this uh, summary and, and in the more detailed background of this provided as well. And that will help them make decisions about who they want to vote for in this election. And uh, of course, this election is very, very important um, to make a decision uh, to choose candidates that are going to uh, best reflect a priority around the environment. And now you can see very clearly what the various parties' views are uh, in a concise way, which is always hard to digest for people, right? It can be a complex subject. So we spent a bunch of time here trying to make sure that we could make it understandable and digestible. Okay. So tell me about this back and forth you had with the Conservative Party. Uh, what, what, how did that go? And they said, look, our, our answer to all these questions is no. What did they say is the reason for that? Did they say, we don't agree with your premise? We don't agree with uh, the targets? We, what was their reason for rejecting them? No, the interaction with all the parties, as I mentioned, started last winter, where we had one-on-one -on -one meetings with a more detailed uh, series of policy proposals. And those were all conversations that, that took place with the people writing platforms for each party. That was very cordial. Um, we had good meetings. They listened to what we had to say. Uh, and then during the development of the actual survey, which started in July, it was very similar. Uh, we didn't ever receive uh, a response from any of the parties, you know, articulating anything other than what we received from them. So, you know, the, the Conservatives didn't have any um, reason for why they chose to answer in that way. We made it very clear to them uh, how we would be characterizing responses and the format, et cetera, and that was the response they gave. But, there was no rationale provided beyond that. Okay. Uh, so let me ask you, that. which party emerges with the highest level of commitment to, to your priorities? Can you tell us that? No, I think that's, uh, that's one of the interesting things about you know, being a charity involved in um, trying to inform the public is that we're not allowed to, by, uh, by law, under the Income Tax Act, to uh, tell people which, in our estimation, is the best party to vote for. That's why we do a survey like this that actually characterize and includes all of the responses from all the parties and then the public can read that and they can make their own uh, estimation about you know which of the parties best reflects their views and so that's uh, that's why we've done it this way okay so was, as i think you've mostly answered it so uh, how do you want so what how do viewers use this information then or voters use this information uh, it's it's fairly handy they can see it on your website at environmental defense and the you know it characterizes, it, it, it puts them into boxes exactly how they've answered on these, these key questions. Um, what more should they do beyond that? 
I think people really need to, uh, in this election, vote for the, the party that is going to do the most to advance environmental priorities. Uh, we know uh, from the information that's coming from the uh, international science community, international governance banks, et cetera, that we have a very short period of time to address the climate change and biodiversity crises. Um, many of these issues are interrelated and tied together, everything from plastics to toxins to agriculture to what we're doing with biodiversity and protected areas. Um, we need to act on all of these, and we have a very short window to do that if we're going to ensure that our civilization continues. So Canadians have a particular responsibility to looking at these issues, carefully assessing the commitments parties are making and voting accordingly. All right. Uh, Tim Gray from Environmental Defense. Uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Well, in a moment, I'll be joined by our panel of party commentators. But first, the party leaders on their key policy announcements today. We are planning to work with the provinces, and there are many provinces across the country who have indicated a tremendous openness to this, to restore to provinces the capacity to work uh, on restricting guns, particularly for municipalities. But we recognize that there are some politicians out there, particularly conservative politicians like Doug Ford, uh, who may not want to strengthen gun control, might want to weaken gun control instead, because that's what conservatives want to do. And we will, in that case, have the tools to move forward and enable and support municipalities in their uh, desire to ban and limit gun, uh, handgun ownership uh, in their municipalities. But of course, our preferred option is to work with all orders of government to make sure uh, that things work well. What I've called for today is a more uh, reinvigorated uh, partnership with our traditional allies uh, through NATO and through countries that share our same commitments to democracy, the rule of law, and peace and security, stronger ties with countries like Japan uh, and India. Um, what this is, is pulling money out of things like the Asian Infrastructure Bank, uh, which does not further Canadians' interests, which is uh, controlled by the government of China, uh, to build roads and bridges and other projects in other countries. Uh, so this is about reinvigorating our relationship, strengthening our relationship on a multilateral level with our traditional allies and countries that share our same values, uh, and ensuring that Canadian taxpayers' dollars are not going to countries uh, that have a relatively high uh, income or a relatively high development index. So this is about reprioritizing that money here at home to help Canadians get ahead and also focusing part of that foreign aid budget to countries that need it the most. We're going to invest immediately into childcare with the goal of creating a universal childcare program by 2030. But we're going to invest immediately $10 billion to build half, uh, half a million new spaces across the country. This is a, a bold new investment that people can really appreciate. Uh, we also want to build a universal pharmacare plan for everyone. It's universal pharmacare. We're going to make that investment. We're not working for the pharmaceuticals, we're working for people, and we're proud of our plan. And for dental care, our plan is um, to build a dental care program that's going to cover 4.3 million Canadians immediately. Those who make less than 70000 will get coverage immediately with our plan. It's going to save a lot of money for families. Each of these programs, childcare saves families thousands of dollars. Pharmacare can save families on average of $550. If you look at dental care for a family of four, it could save $1,200. These are all savings. Now, conservatives are going to try to put a little money in your pocket. 
but they're going to cut the services you need and it's going to make life expensive. Having an opportunity to have an enriched experience makes a difference and emerging from that enriched experience without a crushing level of debt is something essential for every Canadian student, whether a mature student going back for a PhD in your 80s or a young person branching out for the first time. The Green Party is very clear on this education at the post-secondary level, like from kindergarten to 12, should be free. We can do it, we can afford it, many other countries have. Well, Justin Trudeau on gun control, Andrew Scheer on uh, cutting and redirecting foreign aid, Jagmeet Singh on affordability promises, and Elizabeth May on free post-secondary tuition for all Canadians and attacking Andrew Scheer today. We're going to talk about all of that with our panel of party commentators. Susan Smith is a Liberal commentator, Kate Harrison is a Conservative commentator, and Robin McLaughlin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Let's start with gun control. Uh, and another meeting with the uh, Liberal leader and the mayors of suburban Toronto, around sur suburban Toronto today, and they all stood up when asked and said, we want a national ban on gun control, not just allowing municipalities to decide whether they want to ban it or not. Is there a danger in being the halfway gun control guy saying, I can do this, but I'm not prepared to go the whole way in what they're asking for? I think what um, Mr. Trudeau has proposed is a funk is a reflection of what he what was heard across the country. So Bill Blair, his former minister of crime, I can't even get the right title, but he's a former chief of police for Toronto. He's a minister for Trudeau, went across the country listening to, to municipalities, to mayors, to chiefs of police about what communities wanted from a gun control perspective or what was reasonable and doable. What they came back with was a ban on assault weapons mm -hmm. and then stricter rules around things like uh, ammunition, gun storage, and this idea, which is new and it's the first time it's ever come forward, that municipalities would have the ability to ha to ban handguns. Right. But, but they keep and, saying, look at it, so let's say Mississauga bans it and Richmond Hill doesn't. I mean, so what's the point of that? Well, I suspect that you'll see in big areas like the GTA that you'll have a uh, an overall ban that'll come into place where the difference is is smaller communities where the same types of issues are not the same and people and so where the line was that they were looking to do was they didn't want to penalize lawful legal handgun owners but they wanted to allow the municipalities to put something in place that made sense for their communities and their realities. Okay, Kate, what do you think of how they're approaching this? And he's making the point again today that uh, the argument, conservatives will roll back gun control, liberals are moving it forward. Yeah, I, I've been a bit perplexed by Trudeau's approach to this. I wonder if maybe there's some polling out of Quebec which suggests a more nuanced message around uh, a handgun ban is, is favorable. I'm not sure because when I look at uh, the 416 and the 905 uh, to his announcement today, obviously this would be a proposal that some are, are willing to entertain. Uh, so strategically, uh, I'm not quite sure who he thinks he's going to pick up by by not going that far and not eating the NDP's lunch a little bit on this. Um, obviously, the Conservatives have a very different view altogether about this. Nice. But we're talking about you know the strategy behind it. Uh, I'm not quite sure where Trudeau thinks he's going to pick up any votes with this sort of middle ground approach. Robin, what do you think? Well, it's a really complicated issue. It's a really important issue in urban and suburban Canada, and it's not an issue that's just arisen, though it has gotten worse. 
so what I mean, this is something the NDP's talked about. It was about a week ago that Jigmeet Singh made an announcement about a $100 million plan to fund youth groups, after-work specials groups, and drop-in centers, uh, because that's what he's heard, uh, and that's where the, the the need is for the in the communities themselves to make sure that the youth are being provided the opportunities that don't have them direct towards gangs. Um, but of course, the guns themselves are an issue, uh, and it's something that the NDP under Jack Layton in 2008 proposed, which is empowering municipalities to be able to do this. So I think that's a good step. I think that's important. Um, but one of the problems that Trudeau has is that uh, his credibility. He's had four years in office, and in 2015 he campaigned, promising to spend $100 million, similarly to what Jagmeet Singh proposed this time, um, but nothing flowed until 2018 when there was something in the budget uh, that promised m money to go to the RCMP. So the challenge now, four years later, is he where's the credibility on suddenly now this is the biggest priority, where you had four years where you, you know, could have done this. But again, the issue that keeps coming back, I think, when you listen to trauma doctors saying it needs to be a national ban, you, mm. you listen to mayors of municipalities saying it needs to be a national ban, is uh, it's the workability thing. I mean, in theory, okay, well, it's back to the some will ban, some may not ban. Um, uh, is or you it, have is the undersheer approach and don't have any ban at all. Or, or, and I think that's a big difference for people. That I think that's a, no, not for handguns. There's not. And what Trudeau has proposed is the farthest any federal government has ever gone in terms of putting a handgun in place. And the contrast really is with Mr. Shear and his policies and his pronouncements on those. He literally has the talking points of the gun lobby when it co comes to banning assault rifles. <clears throat> and he hasn't spoken out in favor of a handgun ban. And that's a huge contrast between the Liberals and the Conservatives. And, and, and I think Justin, that's something people will be looking Justin at. Justin like, to make this work, you, you do need, you know, you need cooperation of the province as well. And he's, I was just about to make he, this he's back, make he's, point. He's back hammering on Doug Ford right, today. And, at least five premiers who he's going to have a tough, uh, you know, he's going to have a tough road to hoe making that argument uh, to begin with because he can't, um, you know, seem to get cooperation with them. Municipalities are obviously a function of the province. But does he have? Does he have to? You know, if if this is something that you think Canadians want is greater gun control, do you have to be friends with the premiers who don't want it? I mean, do you just go ahead and make the case and say, look, then you make the case for not doing it? Yeah, but you have to do that in between elections. You can't yeah. just make the case when you're cynically looking for those votes. It's a really important issue. We're talking right. about lives here. We're talking about violence and uh, and gun violence. And I think using violence as a wedge issue is something that gets a little problematic. And is that and where we are? Is that's that what he's happening? doing in the 905 right now, for sure. Absolutely, Sue. And we know this. About it's an important safety. issue, but we would have sure, liked to have heard about this more of the last four years. Yeah, but if... if I mean, we've seen there's been a terrible spike in gun violence across the country, particularly in the big cities. And if Mr. Trudeau had just come forward and dropped a ban without a consultation, without going and looking and speaking to people, people would have been complaining about that as well. I think to your question about the premiers, it'd be very difficult for Doug Ford to campaign against getting rid of banning handguns when the mayors everybody else in the big centers including in Toronto want something to be done that I, may be I the challenge case if there was nothing else that. that may be the case if there was nothing else being done and a handgun ban was the only thing that was being proposed but that's not uh, that's not what the province is doing that's certainly not what the conservatives are proposing the conservatives are proposing a lot more funding for uh, law enforcement for guns and gangs units to try and stop the flow yeah, but between so are the provinces liberals. Yeah, the liberals are doing all that as well but the, the conservatives aren't doing anything to get guns off the streets okay let me ask about Andrew Shear's big announcement today, cutting foreign aid, redirecting it to countries that he says need the money more than some of the countries getting it now, and redirecting it away from countries that are hostile uh, to Canada, Kate. Um, now, and, and now we know that this is at least in part how he's going to pay for some of these promises on tax cuts and tax credits. Uh, why is this a good idea? 
Uh, I think for a lot of Canadians, it's twofold. Uh, first would be uh, to find out that we're paying, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to countries that uh, really are in financial good standing uh, would be surprising to a lot of Canadians. I think that there's been uh, a real lack of oversight in a lot of, in, or at least transparency in how these funds have been uh, directed over the last four years. I think uh, Canadians may feel that money is better spent partially here at home but also to countries that need it most. So I think that uh, what the Conservatives propose today is really just a common sense approach to, to foreign aid spending, uh, given our domestic fiscal situation, but also uh, some of those countries that may need the money a bit more. Robin, uh, Jagmeet Singh called this a, a distraction today, saying it's, you know we, we have problems with uh, mm. too, the wealth and too many uh, in, the, in too few hands in this country, why is Andrew Scheer worried about this? We have inequality in this country he should be dealing with. But if, to, yeah. to this idea, to, I think why it, are we if, hearing about you know, this now? Kate's right in that if what Andrew Scheer was saying was true, that would be a common sense approach. The problem is it's not. And we're, it's not like we give money to wealthy countries or wealthy people around the world. Our money is directed towards the most vulnerable, and the money needs to go there. It's actually for our own safety and protection and economic prosperity. Uh, so any time that money flows to a country that may not be a third world country, whether that's China or Russia, uh, or some of the other countries that we may not have good relations with, like Iran, what it's doing is funding programs for women and girls. It's funding programs for women in business, small business. It's funding programs for the rule of law and governance, which is what will help us build a safer world. So, just to so think you're, about you're it, saying when he makes the case that why are we giving, why are we giving money to dictators? Plus, their math doesn't. The country add up. may be run by a dictator, yeah. but it's going to the people who need the help. La so. Last year, Canada gave, I think, an, in U.S. dollars, because there's actually a report that came out on Monday about this, uh, and uh, it's 711 million U.S. dollars. So if we're cutting 25% of that, we're certainly not coming up with the $1.5 billion that some conservatives have been talking about. What we need to do is actually develop a plan to get to 0.7 of gross national product. That is the commitment made under the Millennium Goals. Uh, and the problem is, while the Liberals have redirected money and in, focused in very important areas like sexual and reproductive health, uh, what they have, haven't done is had that money keep up with the growth in our economy. Right, we're, right uh, we're at about we're, 0 we're, Which is a less as a share of GNP than under Stephen Harper. And that's important to note. Okay, Susan. So I think Mr. Scheer's policy pronouncements or foreign policy pronouncements today are kind of symptomatic of his complete inexperience on the foreign policy scene. This is the guy who, you know, was practically wearing a T-shirt. Uh, I, I supported Brexit before Brexit was cool, and he, he's barely walked that back that position back. He hasn't he hasn't been able to address that. He also is the guy from a foreign policy perspective was yelling at um, Justin Trudeau to you know kowtow to what. Mr. Um, Trump wanted on NAFTA negotiations, and so he, he there's a naivete about Mr. Scheer's uh, approach to foreign policy. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't get it when he, you know, to Robin's point and Robin's bang on, the fu the funds that we dispense as a country or distribute as a country go to organizations like UNICEF and Care Canada, and uh, other. On the Red Cross and other on the but, but ground he's groups not, he's that not help, talking but they don't go those, to wealthy dictators. He's not talking like, about no, cutting he, that. No, but he hasn't said where it's going to come from. He hasn't said where it's going to. He doesn't. No, he's just said writ yeah, large. Mean, we're going to chop. I mean, you there, know, we're going to take the, the there, there are more questions it. to be asked here. He's talking. He's saying, you know, it's not anybody that's getting money now in those programs will continue to get the money. It's a question of where, which countries those programs are in that may not continue. Well, it means to get they it, might right? not get the money right. then. In right? those countries I mean, that he he said we're going to continue to support, or that he thinks are doing better than other countries that need the more the money more. Yeah, it'd be good if there was a little more detail. It'd be helpful if there was a platform that was. That's that's the same thing that could be said of any campaign promise that's been made. 
so far is, is uh, what are the where are the details. If only we had the prime minister willing to participate in a debate on foreign policy, then we might be able to well, talk the about prime some minister of these issues. The bunk Thursday debate was supposed night. to be tonight, but it's not. We know that. But there is a TVA debate tomorrow in French. What's this? Yeah. What's the importance? What do you think we'll see in that debate? It is a French language debate, so. Uh, I'm going to say not only to a French audience, but it's really important to an audience of voters in Quebec and Francophone voters across the country. What do you think we watch for, Robin? Well, we'll see a prime minister for the first time, which is nice and important. Uh, it's very important. And the reason the prime minister cherry-picked this one uh, as the only one in addition to the two official debates that he's going to do is states the importance of the francophone vote in Quebec. Uh, and uh, TVA, of course, being the largest network in Quebec, a francophone network. Uh, and liberals have started the campaign in a strong position in Quebec. But uh, actually, among francophones, it's the Bloc Québécois who's been gaining and has the most momentum. So this will be the first, uh, first debate also with the Bloc Québécois leader on the stage. Uh, it'll also be the first time that a great many uh, Quebecers are going to see uh, someone in a turban running to, le to leading a national party and running to be prime minister uh, in the only province that has legislative discrimination in terms of um, uh, you know what someone can wear if they work for the government. So I'm really interested to see uh, how Mr. Singh performs in the debate. He's got uh, impeccable French. He did quite well in Toulouse Pas, but I think expectations are probably still running fairly low for him, given the fact that this is uh, uh, the first time he's participated in a French language debate. Hey Kate, what's the uh, challenge for Andrew Scheer? Um, I think standing out, uh, of course, uh, amongst Maxime Bernier and the Bloc Québécois, there, there's so many votes at play there. Um, it's going to be important for him to really make an impact in the French language debate. For the last year and a half, the Conservatives have been focusing quite a bit on uh, their prospects in Quebec. Uh, obviously, we see from public opinion data that that hasn't really, um, you know, come to fruition for them in a, in a real way. Uh, so are they going to play to some more of those kind of rural issues uh, that are important where they actually have a chance at gaining some seats? Uh, it's going to be a really, really important debate for Andrew Scheer. We expect to see Justin Trudeau on the firing line tomorrow. What's the challenge? For him. That's right. He will have every every other leader with their sights trained on him. So he will be defending his record and outlining his vision and comparing and contrasting himself in particular to Mr. Scheer. From a strategic perspective, I think what's very going to be very interesting is Mr. Scheer in the debate itself. Mr. Trudeau knows who's coming at him. It's everybody. But Mr. Scheer as well has got to defend his far right flank against uh, Max Bernier, who has nothing to... Oh, no, he's not in the he's debate. Not in the he's debate. not in the debate, but people will be making... He's not in the debate. Yeah, sorry, excuse me. They'll but, be making ac ac accusations to him, pushing him on that, I think, on, on uh, Bill 21 and other things. He'll need to be... He's going to be trying to demonstrate his right-wing credentials and keep those people happy while at the same time trying to keep the progressives in. Let, let me let's I want you to hear Elizabeth May today she was talking about Andrew Shears you know uh, re, you know uh, CV I guess before he got into <laughs> politics and minimizing Sorry. the significance of it and and also raising questions about his use uh, of the office of the speaker um, as a politician let me uh, listen let's listen to what she had to say and we'll come back and it was quite wrong of Andrew to be speaker of the house and then go back into partisan politics at all. But it's now quite clear that he used the office of speaker and even held meetings at the speaker's residence to start planning his bid for conservative party leadership. This is an aspect of what he did as a parliamentarian that hasn't received much examination, but I think he's done permanent damage to the respect of the office of speaker. 
Uh, Kate, let me start with you. People have had lots to say about Andrew Shearer's life as an insurance broker or not, his, where, where he got his university degree or not, Regina or Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, what about this? Uh, this is a bit confounding to me for a couple reasons. Uh, all speakers are partisan, so it's not as though Andrew Shearer's the first person to ever be an elected uh, you know, partisan member and then seek the office of, of speaker. Um, I find this whole kind of debate a bit of a, a race to the bottom, to be honest, in terms of you know your credentials and your background and uh, like it's all fair game but I wonder who Elizabeth May is playing to I think she's probably trying to play up that ethical leader side she performs very well on ethics uh, in terms of polling maybe she's seeing those numbers dip a bit or she's trying to right. land some punches for, for votes in BC but I, I wonder if she maybe doesn't have her her eyes on the the right uh, target here Susan what about this uh, well, it was an interesting news conference, certainly when she was going after Andrew Shear's, I think she called it his thin, re it was his thin resume. Uh, it is interesting that Mr. Shear is the first speaker, I think, in living memory who's gone from the chair to then the opposition leader's chair. There's a big difference between just going back to being an ordinary backbencher, but going on to the offensive there. So that's kind of interesting. It's worth some contemplation. Uh, I think overall, you know, the Conservatives like there's a term they like to use. They like to say not as advertised, and maybe Mr. Shear is just living up to that moniker. Robin? Look, if, if Elizabeth May has uh, any allegations with, with foundation about him having used public office hold, uh, position uh, you know, in a way that contravenes the Elections Act, then that's serious. I couldn't say whether or not that's true at all. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that because uh, he, he, that he shouldn't have gone from the Speaker's chair to back into partisan politics. I mean, anybody who's a Speaker is a member of Parliament and also has to get re-elected. So re not much of a difference campaign, there. you're knocking yeah, on doors saying elect our guys, elect but our I did, party. Yeah. But I also think Elizabeth May, she knows a lot about procedures. She knows a lot about a lot of these technical issues. The elections is never really the time that that gets a lot of play in a way that Canadians understand it. So she would have to have something quite founded. She, she also suggested he was kind of a life lifelong politician. She not really is. She's not, well, okay, but but she's in this country, hang on. But, she, but she's, she told a young a candidate. She's a lawyer first. She told a young she's candidate a today, a 19-year-old Green candidate, look, you should serve two terms and get out yeah. and get out of life yeah, insurance. She, her t her she's been a leader of the party since 2006 and elected in 2011. And she was working for the Conservative Party. So she's had two terms. Should she get out? Well, she could. That's up to her yeah, to decide. But I don't think yeah. you could call Liz May yeah. a career politician, and that is okay. what Andrew Shear is. You can't dispute that. Okay. All right. Thank you all. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Peter. Talk again. Well, during the election campaign, we've been hearing from voters across the country. If you uh, watch our coverage, you'll see that we have lots of voices in a number of different venues in our programming here on CPAC. That includes young voters. Tonight, our youth circle conversation takes us to Victoria, B.C. I think probably like affordability and climate change are probably some of like the top issues for students. Mm -hmm. I also think one of the top issues facing Canada though is the security situation in the Arctic and I don't think that people are talking about that quite enough, maybe? I, don't know. I think for young people, like you said, the environment's a huge one right now. I mean, mm -hmm. we have climate strikes consistently almost every Friday or so mm -hmm. um, at the provincial legislature in Victoria. You know, people keep coming and striking and not just young high school students, university students as well. Because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's our future that is uh, in jeopardy because of the climate crisis. It's a very, like, national issue, climate change, but it's also very local here at UVic, because with, like, the Divest campaign, 
Um, and I think same with other issues as well, because like affordability, obviously there's like mm -hmm. the housing crisis in Victoria, um, but then also you have like the price of tuition going up every year as well. Mm -hmm. And the price of tuition for international students Definitely. is also something that we have seen a lot of reaction to. They raised it last year and we were able to get a massive group of students outside of the Senate chamber protesting and eventually occupying the Senate. So affordability for students and tuition and living expenses is really something that the students are passionate about. Women in politics is a big issue mm -hmm. for me. Uh, Canada is one of the worst uh, Western countries, so to speak, when it comes to uh, gender representation in in politics. I feel like Trudeau made such a big statement with his gender equal cabinet, um, but it's kind of not being talked about this time around. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying, okay, what is the next candidate going to do mm -hmm. to increase uh, engagement of women in politics? I feel like they feel like, oh, you know, it's fixed. We have 50% of women. Well, the cabinet's cabinet. not even 50% yeah. anymore now yeah. with, the, with the different... Uh, shifts that they've had. Accountability is such a huge thing um, in politics because a lot of young people, I mean this is anecdotal evidence, but a lot of young people, at least surrounding me, don't really trust uh, the federal government or the politicians, even on like a community, local, you mm -hmm. know, city council level, all the way up to the federal. I find that there's a big distortion between the trust in government and, well, you know, you got to vote, so I might as well cast a vote. So I think accountability is a huge thing for me. Um, when I cast a vote for an individual and the party, I have to think about the different layers of ethics, um, especially with the many scandals that are plaguing Canadian politics these days. Uh, I found through my engagement with like get out the vote and also I participated quite actively uh, during the referendum and trying to get young people to vote for the BC referendum on electoral reform and um, I find that often the answer is either no I'm not going to vote because it doesn't matter or yes I'm going to vote but largely to try and see some level of accountability so I would say that accountability is something that's really important to young people and I, I think they often feel that I, I mean I've even heard people say that like democracy in in Canada is more of more of an idea not something that they can really see in a tangible way yeah yeah I think when it comes to accountability a lot of that's very important for a lot of students and I think unfortunately a consequence is, is a lot of students just kind of check out because mm -hmm. it's like regardless of who the government is I think we see a lot of sometimes not enough accountability or maybe that's just whoever the opposition is, is saying there isn't enough, but um, mm. I, I, either way, I think it's a major concern for students. All right, one of our youth circles uh, as part of our Vote 2019 uh, continuing coverage here on CPAC. That's all for another edition of Primetime Politics, the cable public affairs channel, CPAC. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching, but stay tuned. Lots more of what happened today in the election campaign coming up next.